Up next on Book TV, Harlow Unger presents a history of the Boston Tea Party, which occurred on December 16, 1773. He reports that the demonstration against the collection of import duties by the British was composed mostly of smugglers and tax evaders. Mr. Unger spoke and took audience questions for about an hour. There is nothing so easy as to persuade people that they are badly governed. Those words were spoken by the brilliant 18th century Massachusetts governor, Thomas Hutchinson. I'll tell you more about him later. Let me tell you what else he said, because his words hold true today as much as they did then in 1774. Governor Hutchinson said that you can take the happiest and most comfortable people and use malicious rhetorical skills to arouse popular discontent with their government, with their rulers, with everything around them, even themselves. This is one of the weaknesses, he said, these are his words, this is one of the weaknesses of human nature, of which ambitious politicians make use of to serve their purposes. A year before he uttered those words, a group of Boston rabble-rousers had convinced Americans that they were miserable. And, quote Hutchinson again, those who think they are miserable are so, despite all real evidence to the contrary. Now, I doubt if there's a single one of today's so-called Tea Party patriots who knows what the original Tea Party and Tea Party movement were about. Far from being patriots, those original Tea Partiers were mostly smugglers. Some of them among the wealthiest men in America, merchants, among them John Hancock. Yes, the John Hancock, whose bold signature on the Declaration of Independence left his name synonymous with the word signature. Well, long before he put his John Hancock on the Declaration of Independence, he was arguably, arguably among arguably the wealthiest merchant banker in America, living in an opulent mansion on top of Boston's Beacon Hill with a commanding view of the Massachusetts landscape and seascape. Far from espousing individual liberty, Hancock and his fellow merchants in New England governed their businesses and communities with economic ruthlessness that often left their competitors homeless and penniless. Like today's Tea Party movement, the colonial Tea Party had almost nothing to do with tea. Tea was nothing more than a social beverage for wealthy women. Men seldom drank it, and it ranked below ale and rum among the beverages that Americans consumed most. The Tea Party movement that sparked the American Revolution actually began 20 years earlier, in the 1750s and 60s, when New England business leaders, like today's Tea Partiers, supported a costly government war, but refused to pay higher taxes to cover the costs of that war. The war had started in the early 1750s, when overpopulation in the East, especially the Northeast, sent British settlers pouring over the Appalachian Mountains, into what was then French territory, La Nouvelle France, they called it. France at the time claimed all of Canada, the lands around the Great Lakes, the lands around on either side of the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys, down to the Gulf of Mexico. In 1753, the governor of Virginia, 
sent a young major named George Washington. And most Americans don't know this story. The governor of Virginia sent 21-year-old Major George Washington to Fort Duquesne, a French fort that sat on the site of present-day Pittsburgh before the Steelers started playing football there. Washington ordered the French to leave. The French refused. And the following spring, Washington returned with troops and attacked. Again, most Americans don't know this story, but Washington fired the first shot in what became the world's first true world war. His attack on the French in the western Pennsylvania wilderness grew into a global conflict that would last seven years and involve England, France, Austria, Prussia, Russia, and a dozen other nations fighting for control of colonies in North America, Africa, Asia, and the seas in between. The Seven Years' War changed the map of the world, shifting national borders in Europe, in Africa, in India, and elsewhere. It leveled thousands of towns and villages in Europe, killed or maimed more than a million soldiers and civilians, and bankrupted a dozen nations, including England and France. Now remember, it started in Britain's North American colonies, and the British government and British people naturally thought British subjects in British North America should share the costs of the war with their fellow citizens in Britain. In fact, the government had raised property taxes so high in Britain that farmers rioted in protest and demanded that Americans pay their fair share of the war. So in 1764, the British government extended to the colonies a stamp tax that everyone in Britain had been paying for more than 70 years. It amounted to next to nothing for the average citizen, a penny or two for a stamp attached to legal documents, publications, and the packages of such non-essential products as playing cards. The harshest effects of this tax, however, were on members of three powerful special interest groups. They had them back then, too. These three groups were the merchants, publishers, and lawyers. The merchants had to put a stamp on every purchase order, on every bill of sale. Publishers had to put a stamp on every newspaper and magazine. And lawyers had to put a stamp on every legal document, deeds, wills, and such. The two clever, politically ambitious Bostonians, James Otis, Jr. and Samuel Adams, Jr., saw an opportunity to make money and to gain political power by organizing mobs of unemployed water, uh, waterfront workers to protest the stamp tax. And there were many of these workers left after the end of the Seven Years' War. To win some public support for the protests, they cloaked their activities under the banner of constitutional rights. They claimed that Americans had no representation in Parliament and that for Parliament to tax them without such representation was a violation of the British Constitution. They were under, these mobs were under the secret pay of the merchants and newspaper publishers. Adams and Otis sent these mobs to terrorize Britain's waterfront. They attacked tax collectors, burned their homes, prevented ships from landing, 
gradually they closed the waterfront and closed Boston to almost all British ships. Adams then wrote to political leaders in other coastal cities. He was absolutely filled with a sense of power, and he wanted to gain more. He convinced political leaders in other cities to follow suit. He soon set harbor fronts up and down the coast a roar in riots and gained a national reputation as a great revolutionary leader. Merchants, meanwhile, stopped importing British goods. Within months, British manufacturers and exporters absorbed huge financial losses. British trade fell by 50%, and the British merchants, the British exporters, demanded that Parliament repeal the stamp tax in America to restore trade relations. In 1765, Parliament did just that and turned Sam Adams and James Otis into heroes in Boston and elsewhere in America. Now, just who were these heroes? Well, both were from wealthy families, and like many sons of wealthy New Englanders, they were Harvard graduates. Well, we all make mistakes. If they'd gone to Yale, they would have behaved themselves, gone out and get it, gotten decent jobs. Adams was the son of Boston's largest brewer. Uh, you still see the name, but the, the current Sam Adams beer has nothing to do with the original brewery. Uh, his father died when Sam was 36. Until then, Sam had been too lazy to earn a living on his own, but now he had to take control of the brewery, and he quickly ran it into bankruptcy. And he allowed the family mansion to deteriorate. He seemed unconcerned with earning money. He married, fathered two children, and after his wife's death, this champion of liberty uh, bought himself a slave and raised his children uh, in abject poverty. Friends of his father uh, found him a sinecure, an easy job as a city tax collector to ensure his earning enough to feed his children and his slave. But within a short time, his ledgers showed a shortage of 8,000 pounds representing tax monies he had either failed to collect or had embezzled, and he was later convicted of embezzlement. As for Otis, he was a young lawyer who felt deeply humiliated when the royal governor failed to appoint his father, James Otis Sr., as chief justice of the colony because of a clear conflict of interest. Young Otis grew irrational, swearing to undermine the government in retaliation. I shall set the province in flame, even if I die in the attempt, he shouted. As his anger festered, he edged toward insanity, wandering into a Boston tavern frequented by British officers to provoke a fight. Well, he got it. An officer responded by clubbing him over the head with the broadside of his sword. Although he recovered from the physical wound, he drifted in and out of insanity for the rest of his life. At times, he'd poke his head out of the window and start firing into the park uh, at unseen British enemies. And one time, he wandered into the state assembly, drew his sword, and challenged the Prime Minister of England to come to Boston and, and fight a duel. Eventually, friends tied him down in a chair and carried him to the insane asylum. Despite Adams's depravity, 
and Otis's insanity, the Stamp Act protests left Adams in command of a powerful force of armed thugs in Boston. But the repeal of the Stamp Act left Britain still choking from economic problems. The British government remained bankrupt with a large army in America to protect Americans without any financial support from the Americans. So British Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Townsend, he was the equivalent of our Secretary of Treasury, came up with a scheme to counter the Adams-Otis argument of taxation without representation. He would no longer tax Americans. He would tax the goods that Britain shipped to America. Glass, lead, paints, paper, and tea. He reasoned that duties would be less painful for ordinary Americans who could avoid paying them by simply using homemade substitutes. Farmers and their families, and they, 95% of Americans then were lived on farms, farmers and their families already produced most of their own clothes, their own pottery, the wooden utensils and tools, and many of the other things they needed. The people most affected by import duties were the wealthy, who loved their beautiful British and European furniture and furnishings, their wines and their fancy food, gourmet foodstuffs. So when the British imposed duties to pay for the war, the duties affected the richest colonials, not the poor or the middle classes. It affected those who were profiting most from the war, the ship owners, the merchants, the bankers. Although the Townsend Act duties did not upset ordinary Americans, they infuriated the rich merchants and ship owners who resolved to evade the taxes by smuggling. They didn't decide to smuggle because they were patriots. They decided to smuggle out of greed for profits. And the proof of their motives, the proof of their motives, became evident to everyone when the British finally won the war against the French in North America. As British troops combed through the wreckage of French fortifications, they found that most of the French weapons had been smuggled through British naval blockades by the same New England ship owners who had been carrying military supplies to the British Army. In other words, these British subjects, these merchants, were smuggling arms to both sides in the war, to the enemy as well as their own army. To cloak their treason, the smugglers transformed themselves into outspoken patriots, claiming they didn't oppose taxes as long as they had a vote in establishing tax laws. Although that reads very well in today's history books for children, their argument was nonsense. It was nonsense then, it's nonsense now. Few taxpayers in England had any representation in Parliament. You couldn't vote if you didn't have, if you didn't own property. And only one million of the nine million adult males in Britain were entitled to vote. Now, fair or unfair, the makeup of Parliament didn't alter Britain's need for money to pay for the war or the obligation of every citizen to pay for the war, to pay taxes. The wealthiest of American colonists had profited handsomely from the war without paying for its costs, and when those same merchants began smuggling to evade taxes, the British government felt justified, fully justified, in cracking down. 
Still puffed up with pride from his triumph in the stamp tax protest, Sam Adams coaxed the merchants to sponsor another wave of protests. Marching as they had before under the banners of Liberty, Adams, Adams's waterfront thugs swarmed through Boston's streets, burning the homes of opponents and dragging those loyal to the legitimate government to what the thugs called a liberty tree, to be stripped, swabbed in scalding tar, covered with feathers, then hung from a branch and subjected to unmentionable agonies and humiliations. At Adams's urging, similar mobs formed in other cities. When British troops marched into Boston to crush the rioters, Adams and the merchants retaliated by organizing a nationwide boycott of all British imports again. Within a year, exports to America fell by 50%, and as they had during the Stamp Act, Stamp Act crisis, the British merchants forced Parliament to repeal the Townsend Act to restore trade with America. Unfortunately, Parliament acted too slowly to avoid the famed Boston Massacre. The presence of troops in Boston's streets had so incensed the population that unruly elements turned the redcoat soldiers into targets, first of insults, then snowballs, then stones, and other missiles. A troop of redcoats finally retaliated and fired their rifles into a threatening mob one night, killing five civilians, all of them who turned out to be Sam Adams's thugs from the waterfront. Nonetheless, it threatened to become a citywide riot and to prevent uh, a, a real civil war there. Governor Thomas Hutchinson immediately ordered the officer and the soldiers involved in the incident jailed and brought to trial for murder. Defending them were none other than the respected American lawyers Josiah Quincy and John Adams, a cousin of Sam. Neither Quincy nor Adams were Tories, nor were any members of the jury. They were all local farmers, and they voted unanimously to acquit the officer and four of the soldiers. They found the other two soldiers guilty of justifiable manslaughter, a little more than a misdemeanor. Just as important, though, the trial exposed the role of Sam Adams and James Otis Jr. in inciting the mob. And Boston citizens decided they had had enough of this, enough violence, and enough of Sam Adams. They voted him out of office and sent Otis back to the insane asylum. The Army Command felt the same way. Their troops, they said, had come to America to fight the enemies of the colonists, not the colonists themselves, who were, after all, their own countrymen. So the army pulled out of Boston, and peace returned to Boston and the rest of the colonies. The troubles between Britain and her colonists should have ended then and there, with everyone living happily ever after under the Union Jack. Except, except for one tiny irritant that remained in the economic relationship with the motherland. In repealing the towns and duties, a small group of angry parliamentarians decided they needed to retain some symbol of what they insisted was Parliament's absolute authority to tax all British subjects with or without their consent. Although Parliament had yielded to all the demands of the Americans, its majority felt 
it had to retain at least one of the Townsend duties as a symbol of its authority, so it retained the smallest, most innocuous one, the one on T. Wow, what a colossal miscalculation. As I said before, tea was nothing more than a woman's social beverage in American homes. Few Americans drank even a cup of tea a day. And in any case, the tax on tea was negligible. About one-tenth of one penny for a nine-penny cup. Nine pence. That's a tax of about one one-hundredth of one percent. But as Thomas Hutchinson put it, from so small a spark, a great fire was kindled, and its flames would eventually destroy a great empire and spark the rise of another from its ashes. As you may have guessed, even the small tea tax cut somewhat into the profits of America's largest tea importers, so they resumed smuggling. And of course, British customs officials tightened anti-smuggling enforcement and after the British seized one of John Hancock's ships for non-payment of duties, Hancock reopened his cash drawer to Sam Adams. Adams sent his paid thugs to vandalize and destroy the shops and homes of anyone who sold or drank imported tea from Britain, or even reported by someone as having drunk some tea. So if your neighbor hated you, he'd just call somebody over and say he's drinking British tea, and the house would be burned down. The tea boycott spread to other New England port cities, then down the Atlantic coast to New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, and other ports. This was the original Tea Party movement. It wasn't patriotic, and it wasn't pretty or glorious. The Fuhrer climaxed on Thursday, December 16, 1773, just before Christmas with the legendary Boston Tea Party and the dumping of about a million dollars worth of British tea. The people who dumped them amounted to about six, seven dozen men. No one ex knows exactly how many were there. It was dark. Many disguised themselves as Indians. Ironically, these white colonists uh, who willingly slaughtered any American Indian on sight uh, disguised themselves as Indians. They said Indians were a symbol of freedom. Regardless of this phony symbolism, the participants in the Boston Tea Party unleashed a social, political, and economic upheaval that they would never again be able to control. The Tea Party provoked a reign of terror in Boston and other American cities, with Americans inflicting un unimaginable barbarities on each other. Mobs dumped and burned tea ships in New York, Philadelphia, Charleston. Boston staged a second tea party a few months after the first one. The mobs brooked no dissent. They burned the homes of anyone they suspected of favoring British rule and sent their dreaded tumbril, an imitation of the Inquisition coach, to the doors of citizens who dared voice support for their church, their king, their country, and their legitimate established government. The squeaking wooden tip cart arrived at dawn, its, its drivers breaking down doors and dragging shrieking victims from their beds for transport to the Liberty Tree. A jeering mob always awaited them 
to strip strip them, tar and feather them, and hang them with a rope around their waist from a branch to be scorned, beaten, and humiliated. This was no fight for liberty or independence. This was a civil war between British subjects over the extent of state authority and the rights of the individual. And independence did not end that conflict. The colonial Tea Partiers and those who supported them were essentially libertarians who had built businesses, carved out farms from the wilderness on their own, without government help, and they were not about to share profits of their labor with any government or any government tax collectors. And independence did not change matters. Almost immediately after Britain recognized our independence, farmers across the nation, in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maryland, Virginia, began rioting against government taxation, this time taxation by their own elected governments in each state. It was the same conflict between the collective rights of the state, the authority of the state, versus the rights of the individual. Taxation by any state, by any government, invariably deprives the individual of some of his property, forcing him to contribute involuntarily to his community's defense and other essential services, and sometimes non-essential services. Is postal service an essential government function, or can private industry do a better job? Is public transport an essential government service, or should we leave it in private hands? These are questions we still debate. Although ratification of the Constitution and creation of a federal government answered some of these questions and calmed things down a bit, they erupted again into all-out civil war in the mid-19th century, when many Americans felt the federal government had usurped state and local powers. Yes, slavery was central to the Civil War, but Northerners tend to oversimplify the nature of that conflict. Even Americans who opposed slavery in the, in the North as well as the South and supported emancipation recognized that the Emancipation Proclamation, with all its good intentions, also represented government confiscation of property. It's horrible to think of human beings as property, but they were. And the Civil War didn't end that conflict. It flared up again during the Civil Rights Movement in the 20th century, when the federal government essentially usurped authority over education. And again during the Vietnam War, when the executive usurped authority to lead the nation to war. And the debate continues today with the emergence of a modern Tea Party movement that is trying to halt and even reverse expanding federal government intrusion into our daily lives. The problem that Tea Partiers today face is that what one man defines as government intrusion, another man defines as an essential subsidy to, for the national economy. I'm sure that farmers, if you ask the farmer today or a highway engineer or an oil man, the definition of a, of a boondoggle, they're not going to say agricultural subsidies, or subsidies to the oil industry, or subsidies for highway construction. We can only hope that the growing Tea Party movement today doesn't divide the nation and produce the conflict it did in the 18th century. At the time, 
Massachusetts Chief Justice Peter Oliver described the horrors produced by the colonial Tea Party movement in his memoirs. The tarring and feathering and riots reigned uncontrolled. The liberty of the press was restrained by the very men who had been hallooing for liberty. Those printers who were inclined to support government were threatened, their presses destroyed, and all this uproar arose from the selfish designs of the merchants, mock patriots who disguised their private views by mouthing it for liberty, but who were willing to sacrifice everything for money. The turmoil of the colonial Tea Party movement stripped tens of thousands of Americans of their dignity, their homes, their properties, and their birthrights in the name of liberty and independence. Nearly 100,000 Americans left the land of their forefathers forever in what was history's largest exodus of Americans from America. And untold thousands who refused to leave their native land fled westward into the dangerous wilderness to start life anew under new identities. Among those forced to flee to England and be buried in foreign soil was the last royal governor of Massachusetts, Thomas Hutchinson, whose forebears arrived in America in 1634 and included the great religious leader, Anne Hutchinson. He adored this country. It belonged to him as much as it did to Sam Adams. More so, he had served this country in its government, in its wars. Sam Adams had never done that. Before Hutchinson died, he wrote these words. I am sometimes tempted to endeavor to forget that I am an American and to turn my views for my native, to turn my views to what remains of life in England. But my passion for my native country returns, and though I know not how to reason upon it, I feel a fondness to lay my bones in my native American soil. Justice Peter Oliver, also from an old American family, also fled to England and lies buried there. George Washington and other respected American leaders across the country condemned the Boston Tea Partiers as vandals, and they might well have ended in jails and faded into obscurity had the British government not responded so rashly and so violently by sending troops back to Boston by quartering troops in private homes. Of loyalists as well as rebels, the British military command seemed to declare war against all Americans, and that provoked almost the entire Massachusetts citizenry into open rebellion. Lexington followed, with Americans discovering the importance of the individual's right to bear arms. Then came Bunker Hill and that was followed by a declaration of independence by the Massachusetts legislature. Virginia followed suit after Patrick Henry's stirring call for liberty or death and a declaration of war against Britain. His call echoed across the continent and roused so many Americans that on July 4, 1776, all 13 states declared independence from Britain. And who were those original Tea Partiers? Who were the men on those ships? Who set off this explosion that sparked a revolution 
and helped bring down one empire and create another. Who boarded those ships and dumped the tea in Boston Harbor? Sam Adams, Hancock? At the time, they swore never to reveal each other's names to prevent their arrest for treason and immediate death on the gallows. Well, their names remained secret for decades after the Tea Party, but they're now listed in my new book. I believe the list will surprise you. One irony of the Tea Party, however, is that none of those who dumped tea into Boston Harbor rose to prominence in the government of the nation that emerged from the revolution. And that's because the kind of men who lead revolutions and destroy governments, the Robespierre's in France, the Sam Adamses in America, seldom have the qualities needed to organize and build a new government or nation. They never nurture. Their instincts are to destroy, to kill. And a second irony of the revolution that the Tea Party sparked is that instead of eliminating taxation, it increased it 10,000-fold. Suddenly, local governments had to pay for the cost of defense, law enforcement, postal services, and all the other government services that the British government had paid for before independence. Instead of paying a small single duty on tea, Massachusetts imposed huge duties on every product that passed through its ports and collected it. Apart from the cost of the tea that was lost in the Tea Party, that was dumped overboard, the Boston Tea Party was undoubtedly the most costly Tea Party in world history. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be happy to answer your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be happy to answer any questions, and uh, the gentleman uh, there will uh, have a microphone for you to uh, be heard across the nation and across the world. Where did tar and Don't feathering? faint. Where did tar and feathering originate? Was it from England? or? Where does... Where did it originate? In, in Europe or in... Colonies. Tar and feathering. Oh, tar and feathering. No, it originated here, uh, as far as I know. Uh, it, it was not a custom in England. Yes, sir. Paulo, was there any organized support in the colonies, any of them, states, uh, uh, which you would call loyalists? Uh, uh, organized support for? you might call loyalists supporting the um, Oh, yes. Uh, oh, across the nation, at, at least one-third of the population were, were uh, absolutely loyal uh, subjects of Britain. And in the debate over independence in the Continental Congress, uh, only days before the actual Declaration of Independence, uh, John Dickinson of Philadelphia authored uh, the uh, uh, Olive Branch petition uh, to the king, pledging our loyalty, American loyalty to the king, love of the king, uh, a love of being British subjects, and simply asking for him to put to control the parliament and and let us raise our own taxes and keep parliament out of our 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 business. Had he accepted the Olive Branch petition, we'd probably have become a member of the British Commonwealth.
So there was tremendous amount of, of loyalty and even loyalist forces. There was a major battle uh, that's often not mentioned, and I don't know whether this is uh, prejudice or what, but a major battle in Moore's Creek, at Moore's Creek, North Carolina, not far from Wilmington, North Carolina. A British fleet was going to land soldiers at Wilmington, and a loyalist army had formed inland and was marching towards the coast to join up with the British regulars, a force of what were rebels, but what we call patriots, intercepted them and massacred them at Moore's Creek, which is, uh, there was a, a blind uh, gulch where the uh, rebels were waiting for them and wiped them out. And so the British, without the loyalist support, the British troops couldn't land. And that uh, kept the South free of British control for a few years until they, they landed at Charleston. Yes, sir. You mentioned uh, that the Boston Tea Party spread south to New York and to other cities. It, it almost sounds as there was a network of people who were, uh, had the same thought or being inspired one way or another or were working together. Uh, I, I've never thought of the Boston Tea Party. Tea Party is being that, but uh, is, is that really what Yes, uh, Sam Adams set up, uh, because there was no other form of communication those days, set up uh, a series of committees of correspondence, or instigated the formation of committees of correspondence in every major city in the country. And they started communicating with each other, uh, and that's how word was passed. That's how we eventually uh, decided on a on a Continental Congress for all of these uh, committee members to meet in Philadelphia and discuss independence. Yes, ma'am. Wasn't the Tea Party at Greenwich, New, New Jersey, wasn't that before? I'm, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. The Tea Party at Greenwich, New Jersey, wasn't that, didn't that happen before the Boston Tea Party? And which Tea Party? The one at Greenwich, New Jersey. No, afterwards. Yeah. Um, there was another Tea Party I didn't mention. They dumped uh, a tea ship at Greenwich, New Jersey, which most people have never heard of, and I must admit I never heard of it until I did research <laughs> on this book. <laughs> but it's uh, along the Delaware River opposite uh, Philadelphia. Yes, ma'am. Could you talk about what sources you used for writing the book, and are they new ones or reinterpretations or well nothing is new uh, and the sources are uh, almost endless uh, about the equivalent of three of those shelves over there um, uh, obviously the diaries and writings of John Adams uh, the, the writings of John Adams are I think seven volumes and the diaries are four volumes the writings of Sam Adams writings of Thomas Hutchinson. All of these people were prolific writers, kept diaries, and uh, uh, kept all their correspondence. So it's, it's a, a rich uh, uh, a pool of research. Yes, sir? All of this information you've disclosed, uh, why was it dormant for so long? Well, it's not dormant. It's there in bits and pieces. And the, the problem with American history, uh, uh, 
I, I think I can generalize all American history, but certainly the, the history of the uh, colonial, revolutionary war, and post-revolutionary war era is that it's very complex. And uh, as my son, when my son was about 14, he came home from school and said, you know something, Dad? Uh, American history, all they do is talk. European history is a lot of action. But they, all they do is talk. Well, he's right. And uh, the talk is very complex on very, very complex issues that philosophers and political and just uh, lay philosophers have been debating for many, many, many years. Uh, this involved enormously important concepts that had implications for the entire world. Uh, the divine right of kings, the divine right uh, uh, of aristocrats, uh, slavery itself. The, the rights of the individual. This was the Age of Enlightenment, and our revolution culminated the Age of Enlightenment in which these philosophers and authors and thinkers in the Western uh, world ha were debating the, the rights of the individual, the, what they call the natural rights of the individual. Were all men born with equal rights, as opposed to the divine rights of kings. So these were very, very complicated issues. And to condense all of this thought into a history book this thick that an adolescent has to get through in 26 weeks or whatever the length of the school year is, it's impossible. It's impossible. So the authors of American history, and especially the texts that most Americans grow up studying, have to condense it and make it really simplistic. Yes, sir. Have you started another project that you can relate to us now, uh, what you're writing, uh, your next book, sir? Yeah, uh, bring on these other books. <laughs> uh, my uh, next book, actually, my next book uh, is, uh, is going to have a very, very small readership. It's about Beaumarchais, uh, who was the French playwright who was also a brilliant inventor, a brilliant thinker, a brilliant spy, and a, a, a great libertarian. And he organized, he convinced the French king uh, that uh, by surreptitiously supporting the American Revolution, uh, the French could undermine and weaken their traditional enemy, Britain, uh, who had beaten the pants off of them in the Seven Years' War. And he uh, was responsible for organizing uh, the dummy corporations that in France that shipped surreptitiously shipped uh, obsolete French arms. They weren't obsolete over here, but they were obsolete in France from the Seven Years' War. Useless arms shipped them over here surreptitiously to the American rebels, and uh, indeed he was responsible for uh, the surprise victory at Saratoga. The the arms had arrived in Portsmouth just in time. They were carried overland. And Burgoyne was about to, to beat us, and suddenly this flow of arms came, and we were able to turn the war around. So he was, uh, the book is called The Improbable Patriot. Uh, but that, the, the, my, the next book directly on this period will come out in about a year, and it's called The Seven Pillars of Power, and it's how George Washington took this vague, uh, vaguely defined office, the presidency, and turned it into what 
many now call the imperial presidency. And he did this on his own. A lot of people credit Hamilton, but it was he. It was George Washington. Yes, sir. You mentioned the name John Hancock in connection with the Boston Tea Party. John Hancock, I take it, is what was the leading merchant, perhaps in the colonies. What was his part in the Boston Tea Party? Well, he was. He wanted no part of it. <laughs> he, he wanted to continue smuggling and making money. Uh, he was arguably the wealthiest merchant banker in America. There, there was no hard currency in this. Uh, in this hemisphere at the time. So merchants often, uh, everything was on barter, and merchants, large merchants like Hancock, would uh, provide seed or tools to, say, a farmer or a smaller merchant uh, against, for example, the farmer's crop in the spring, futures. And that's why they were called merchant bankers, because they were lending money, they were doing the, they were fulfilling the role of the modern banker, as well as the modern merchant. And he was the largest. His, his uncle had built the business, and the House of Hancock was the largest merchant bank in America. Now suddenly these rioters are all over the place, and they're threatening any merchant uh, who does business with England. And he tried to straddle uh, uh, the, 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 the road for as long as he could. But as the, as the mobs became more and more uh, powerful and began burning down the mansions, they burned down the mansion of Thomas Hutchinson. Thomas Hutchinson's father was a merchant banker. And uh, it was uh, one of the most beautiful homes in America. Uh, designed by Inigo Jones, with a magnificent cupola on top, and the uh, the rioters went out there and burned that house down from top to bottom. Uh, one of the rioters in his diary described how the cupola fell to the ground, but they destroyed manuscripts that went back to America's founding. Hutchinson was uh, uh, I want to call him an amateur historian. He, after all, he was a governor. He was, uh, brilliantly educated man um, with advanced degrees in history. And he uh, wrote, and, and this is still available, a three-volume history of Massachusetts from its very beginnings. But the documents to support that history, original manuscripts from uh, the time, the early landings in Massachusetts were all destroyed uh, by these rioters. Well, Hancock didn't want that to happen to himself. And uh, he tried to make peace with Sam Adams and uh, s sat on the fence as long as he could and finally he had to join he had to uh, give money to to the uh, to support Adams and become part he decided it will be more advantageous for him to try to take control of the rebel movement which he eventually did uh, and uh, when Massachusetts declared independence he was elected first governor of Massachusetts. That put him in control of the Massachusetts independence movement and forced Sam Adams into the background. Sam Adams went to the Constitutional Convention uh, and was there for two, I think, two, possibly three terms, um, but never again was uh, a figure of importance in either national or, or Massachusetts history. He became 
governor of Massachusetts, he was uh, uh, vice governor during Hancock's last term uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. Hancock died. He acceded to the governorship. He was elected for one term, and then he died. But he, he, he never again uh, had any importance in American politics or state politics. We have time for one more question from... Wait for the microphone, please. What was the relationship between Sam and John Adams? Uh, well, obviously, they, they, they knew each other at the Continental Congress. They both, both served in the Continental Congresses, uh, so they knew each other there. But Adam, just John Adams was a staunch conservative, and uh, Adams was this fiery radical. Uh, when Sam Adams got to the Continental Congress, uh, most of the con Congress, they weren't called Congress, but most of the delegates there gradually isolated him and the other radicals, and they had little to do uh, in, the, in the Continental Congresses at the beginning of the war or during the war. And indeed, Sam Adams, he couldn't organize his own business in his own home. He had no place in, in the Continental Congress. And John Hancock was elected uh, president of the Continental The first president was Peyton Randolph uh, from Virginia. He got sick in about three or four months. And John Hancock became the first effective president of the Congress. And when the Articles of Confederation were signed, he remained president of the Congress, and ergo the first president of the United States uh, in, in fact, if not in, in title. And he was a brilliant uh, administrator. One would have to be to run the kind of business he did. He was a brilliant administrator and uh, helped uh, Washington win the war. He really uh, had a very difficult time trying to organize uh, the purchase and uh, of, of arms and materiel because Congress had no right to tax, had no powers to tax. So Hancock had to send emissaries to Europe to get loans, and he was very successful doing it. Well, thank you again, ladies and gentlemen.
Listen.